All right, what's going on, everyone? There is a topic today we're going to talk about that it's been in the news a lot, but I think there's still a lot unknown about it. It's the evacuation effort to get Americans and Afghans out of Afghanistan over the last month, roughly. We're recording this September 8th. I think it kind of peaked towards the very end of September, but August. Were what? I'm sorry, end of August, yeah. Um, before I start rambling too far, the person I asked to talk about this today is Sayer Payne. So Sayer's been on here a couple times before, but some good feedback this morning from a friend was maybe do some rec- do some introductions again, um, because not everybody has listened to every episode thus far. So um, Sayer, you mind giving a quick introduction, a little background on yourself? Yeah, um, so briefly, so I'm a for- I was an army, I was a captain in the army, I was an infantry officer. I just did, I did my four years, did ROTC at Ohio State, and a part of those four years was I was a infantry platoon leader with the 101st Airborne Division, and we did a 12-month combat deployment, you and I both together yep. uh, in the same company, fighting in Kandahar Province, Afghanistan, 2010 to 2011, which was the, the, the big surge of counterinsurgency. And those, those years were the deadliest years in the war itself. Perfect. Yeah. So thanks there. Um, and then for anybody who doesn't know my background, just a little bit to put in context here, graduated from West Point in 2009 as a field artillery officer, went to the 101st Airborne, well, a little detour through Fort Sill, but then to the 101st Airborne Division, uh, second brigade combat team and worked as the fire support officer for dog company 2502. Sayer was one of those platoon leaders. We deployed together, came back together. Um, we both were in the 101st. I was still there when Sayer left, correct? I, I was there till yeah. 14. Yeah. You were, yeah. I deployed again to Eastern Afghanistan and then left active duty in 2014. Today, National, or spent some time in the National Guard and today in the Army Reserve, so still a little bit connected to the military, but there we go. And I'm not, background. so to be clear, and we'll probably talk about what's going on in Afghanistan, I'm not, you know, I got out, I was active duty, the day I graduated, you and I are both officers, so the day we graduate college is the day you become an officer, and that was 08, and then uh, 2012, I signed out, so it's actually almost been, next year is going to be 10 years that I've been out. So what I was getting ready to start rambling on was this issue as the, <clears throat> I still don't know exactly the term we're using, if it's withdrawal or exit or drawdown or whatever it is. As Americans were leaving Afghanistan for good on August 31st, there was this massive effort to get Americans and Afghans out of the country. And some of that was done much of that, most of that was done by the government and say, or correct me, I'm wrong here. Most of that was done by the government, but a lot of it was coordinated by people like you that aren't really connected to the government at all. I mean, it was a giant mix mash of both because I mean, the, the, the U S government and then what became, I mean, the Taliban government, they were still the ones running the show. And then but the problem is, neither entity knows what the hell they're doing. Truly, truly. I mean, the Taliban don't know how to really be bureaucrats and administer an airfield and all of those sort of things. It's just not really their thing. Um, and then the U.S. is just honestly, I, I, I don't know how else to describe. I mean, it's, you know, we joke about the BMV and how crappy it is and the line and its inefficiencies. Well, you know, it, uh the BMV is not the only entity like that. And it's, it, that government thing is really spread and um, just massive inefficiencies is what we saw. I mean, this is a, this is a country that we've been moving people and things out of for 20 freaking years. And it's really hard to fathom how botched this whole thing went, in my opinion. I think what I'm interested in hearing this because the whole time, this was going on, you were kind of working crazy hours, like Mm -hmm. day night for days on end. And I think it's hard for a lot of us, you know, just read the news, see it pop up on on the TV every so often. 
and I'll read again about it tomorrow over breakfast. But that was a 24 hour window. And in that, in that time period, you're, you're actively coordinating for people to move around the country to get to certain gates to try to save their lives. Would you, do you have an example or a story you can walk us through of maybe one that worked or one that didn't work um, and kind of how that looked from your end? Well, I want to back it up a second just to, the whole situation is a little crazy how it all happened. And, you know, I'm not the only one. There are thousands. And um, essentially what happened was, let's just back it up real quick. And we've talked about SIV before. And, you, you know, you can look it up. These are the interpreters that we, as a United States, said, hey, if you do X amount of time with us as an interpreter and uh, get a nice little recommendation, then, yeah, you can, that's a pathway to the United States. And that's because the interpreter um, is necessary to implement counterinsurgency, which was the mission. And then also recognizing their extreme peril of danger if we weren't there, because the retribution is a it's a big thing when it comes to an interpreter. And um, a lot of us that have, have been in Afghanistan and wrote those letters of recommendation have been in contact with our interpreters here and there since for, again, you know, like a decade. And um, since being there because of Facebook, and it's just it's real easy, obviously. Yeah. And, um, you know, they'll reach out, hey, sir, can I, you know, here's a letter of recommendation, can you, can you sign or can you fill this out for my SIV? And then maybe you follow up and see how it's going. And then they say, well, they kicked it back for this. And that might be a year, two, three, three years later. And so a lot of us, there's a lot of us out there that are, are we know about the SIV. We have contact with our interpreters. And We've also seen the failings of it. It's just like, we're all just scratching our heads. Like, what the hell is going on? Like, why is this so difficult when this was a debt? We're talking about things a decade ago. They've done their time and then some. They've got the glowing letter of recommendation. Like, what is the holdup here? And that's how this system has been implemented. I wrote a law review article about this in 2017. And uh, there was plenty of resources I had highlighting this issue and this problem that was, you know, almost a decade old at that point, it felt like. Um, just a, a very, a, over multiple administrations from both political parties. I mean, that is a fact. And, and to me, that's what makes this an, a very specific American problem. It's not been a priority from day one. There wasn't no. anybody, there's more noise about it now after the fact when it's too late. And I remember hearing the numbers of how many people we were trying to get out in mid-August. And when you see it, you're like, well, that ain't going to happen. Just not, um, just no way. Right. Well, by that time. Yeah. And um, yeah, both administrations have, have um, they bungled it really. Uh, some, both, both of them really both parties, but multiple parties. administrations, because this goes back quite a while. Three administrations, three administrations, both parties. And um, it's been kind of intentionally bungled too, because they're, again, in my law review article, the Obama administration, I've got a piece in there um, talking about how the st senior State Department folk said, well, here's the thing. And this would have been in the 12, 13, 14 timeframe, which is five years after, you know, SIV was created in 09 with specifically enumerated a nine month provision of how long it should take. That's another Ooh. thing we should mention. We should mention that. Nine, months, is, nine months would be fast tracked. Compared they to how spell long it out specifically in the SIV. Um, but Anyway, in 13 and 14, you know, there's conversations, emails from State Department folks saying, hey, look, we can't, we're going to shoot our right foot off if we uh, just all these good interpreters that have been great. Um, if we just send them off to the uh, United States, we're going to kind of screw ourselves in country because not everybody, I mean, it's most, I think still it's majority illiterate country we got to think about. And so, and then there's so many different languages in that country. Mm -hmm. Um, so there, to have like an English speaking Afghan who speaks, who can go from Pashto to English to Dari to English to Dari to oh. Pashto, Pashto to Dari is. Didn't we just have one out of the whole company that could do that? 
it, it's tough, right? Yeah. And they might be born speaking Dari, know a little bit of Pashtun, and they're kind of picking it up with us, actually, because we were in Pashtun country, where these folk didn't, didn't really grow. They're from a different, different ethnicity from a different region of Afghanistan. But the point being is there's a limited quantity. And so we've got evidence of the government maybe not intentionally um, holding it up when it was already failing though, but intentionally not fixing it. And then uh, the Trump administration totally blackballed the whole thing. I mean, they did the, they uh, first banned the Muslim countries and then they just, they stalled. They, they essentially just stalled and, and didn't process anything. And then for the whole year of COVID, they didn't do anything at all. They just, it was an opportunity to, to uh, just let it fizzle. It's interesting then, uh, to, to think about that because it's a, this is one of those where when you explain it like that and say, we can't just have our good interpreters that take years to get up to speed. I mean, so for instance, you don't just need somebody that can speak Dari and Pashto in English, which there's already not a lot of them. If they can read, it's another step up. Mm-hmm. But do they understand military formations? When you say, we're going to take a, tell, tell our Afghan partners that we're going to take a platoon to the south side of the Wadi. How many of them know the word for platoon? These very mm. specific military terms that they're not picking up learning English on YouTube and things like that, or wherever they learn English, I'm just making an example. So it takes a while to get really good interpreters. And I understand that argument of we can't pull all of the good ones, but then I'm stuck because what do you do? What do you do? You made a promise. Um, that's tough. Yeah. Well, you know what? They, they made it a two-year mandate. Maybe they should have made it five years, but they didn't. They made it a two-year mandate and they said nine months and they signed the dotted line and they shook a hand and they looked them in the eye and I looked them in the eye. You looked them in the eye. Um, and that was the burden that the government placed on us. And that brings me to my point of how did all this happen? Well, this system, which has failed these guys for a decade plus, we're all aware of it. Um, the state department is unresponsive to requests or updates on packets. And, um, what we had in, what we had this summer with this withdrawal date occurring was all of these interpreters that I just mentioned that are still in contact with their, um, maybe their recommender or just, or just someone they served with over, you know, cause they did do two years, but many did more than two years. Many did more than that. And um, so they, you know, they had various army folk. And so they just start reaching out to them because we're associated with America. We're associated with the army. They, they know me as captain paint. They don't know me at, anything else is any form of identity other than I'm an army officer. I'm a commander is how they view me. Um, and I get things done because that's what it's like over there when you're in those wartime settings. Um, and, and so they're reaching out for us desperately. And, and by the way, they're reaching out to an audience who served on the front lines with these folk who you're, you're in the trenches with an interpreter. People should know that an interpreter is right beside combat units the entire time. This is not something where the interpreter just hangs out at the main base drinking coffee and donuts. And then when the Americans come around, they say, hey, I need an interpreter, give me one. I'm sure that exists on big posts, but speaking to our deployment in uh, freaking Taliban country in heavy combat where you had to use, it was man, there was no unilateral movements with us. We could not do 101st Airborne anything. It had to be with the, our Afghan National Army counterparts. I was a platoon leader. I had an Afghan platoon. And back to your point about being able to communicate, we have to be able to communicate tactics. I think that's probably, it's an interesting point that you brought that up because I would, you know, I'm going to say we had a successful platoon. I feel very successful. I'm very proud of the, our, our platoon and what we did. Um, I think we applied a lot of common sense and, and that's sort of what it's about at the end of the day, because there are no right, perfect answers. But I think a large part of that was the fact that my interpreter, I, a lot of people view these ANA that, that, you know, we're the 101st airborne. Okay. We did before we got there, you and I, this unit did three combat deployments in, in just over five years, the invasion of Iraq, 
killing Saddam's sons the next deployment, then not doing much the following one. And now Afghanistan. We jumped into D-Day, Ashaw Valley of Vietnam. You know, it's a, it's a, we went to JRTC before. We did so many different live fires. We were so well prepared. You and I did four years of college specifically just to go into the army. Um, we were so well trained. It's interesting. Well, we did, it's hard to recognize that our Afghan people, they were just out of basic training. They didn't know anything really. And we still had to go into combat with them. And a lot of people viewed that as a liability, which it sort of was. I mean, if you're just looking at our safety and our protection, heck yeah, you got these people that might step in on an ID. They might not be, they might shoot a friendly fire because they're not paying attention. That's, that's a big thing you got to worry about. Um, but my interpreter was used with the Soviets. He's already been in war and in combat. His, his brother was very well known in the war. And this is, by the way, for the Soviets against the Mujahideen in a conventional setting. And so he knew all those terms we're talking about, platoon, company, just maneuvering, support by fire, um, even talking to helicopters. He's sort of been there, done that. Uh, and then you have other interpreters that we had a, our main company interpreter. He was attached to special forces early into the sort of Afghan war as well. And they, they absolutely contributed to mission success. And um, it's just a very interesting dynamic that, that we had with that sort of non-combatant. They don't carry firearms. Well, some do. But they're with us 100% of the time on every single, no matter how dangerous and aerosol at night into the backyard of some bad Taliban leaders, those interpreters absolutely are, they're sitting right beside me on the helicopter every time. And I'm sure this has changed over time, but I remember ours had to dress like us as in mm -hmm. wear American uniforms because they didn't want them to stand out. So they, they could be targeted by the Taliban, which is you know, it's, it's an interesting way to do it, right? Back in, there was a time where medics were very clearly marked. So you wouldn't, so the enemy wouldn't shoot them. And now we're, we're dressing interpreters like us so they don't get singled out. But um, Sarah, I want to get into the kind of the tactics, the nitty gritty details of some of the stuff you were doing, especially in the second half of August. That's, well, we've seen headlines at best. You sent me a couple of videos, but um yeah any insight to that yeah okay yeah so what i'm explaining is just this duty that i think a lot of us have to these people that were again they they were right there with us they did their job without complaint and that does create a bond just a forever bond that is cemented and they start pleading with all of us for help and we all know they're gonna die we know what will happen to them everybody's very well aware of that a lot of people back home, of course, they're just not, they don't know. A lot of people don't know the difference between Taliban and Al-Qaeda and bin Laden and Iraq and what that is. But um, so what it evolved to was big picture. They're all texting us. Help. Whoever they can, help, they're, help, they're, help. They're, they're reaching out to anybody they got. Anybody they got. And a lot of the recipients we're like, shit, uh, what, okay, okay, let me see what I can do. And it just started snowballing from there. So I'll talk to me personally. So it started with me. This was in July, by the way. I, mine started in July. Okay. I thought the current one that I have stranded in Afghanistan was, I was told that he was dead. We haven't heard from him for five years. But um, he kind of popped up on the net in July. And uh Essentially, he got uh, positively identified in his local village. That's when he first started texting me. And so then um, I'm trying to coordinate the news. A lot of it was the news, trying to digest and explain to him um, what's going on, what's the situation. And then, like, we would hear um, the government saying, hey, we're going to do, we're going to get all of our allies out, flights the last week of July. I remember hearing that. We even called it Operation Afghan Refuge. And so I would be relaying strategy to the interpreter, like, okay, look, we got a, we got a um, timestamp, we got a name for it. It's all, look, we, we know it's SIV. The, everybody's been so aware of the SIV program. There's 90,000 of you. We know there's a backlog. 
all we got to do is get them out to a third party nation or Guam or something like that. And, and uh, then just process the paperwork and then get them home. I mean, that's what was in my mind in July. That, that's what I thought was going to happen. And so it wasn't too, too pressing, but, you know, I was filling out, I was sending emails. I'm contacting um, law firm colleagues that might know people in the state department because my goal then was, okay, great. Last week of July, there are flights. How do I get my guy's name on the flight? I'm vouching for him. He's in the system. He did his job. Um, let me contact my senators. Let them aware of the situation. What can they do to get on the State Department? Get his friggin' name and his, his family's name on a manifest. And I was going to coordinate that. And I think that that's how a lot of us started with this logical thought that there would be flights that existed to be able to do this. Um, so then... But, I mean, I think it's worth noting that a lot of the interpreters that are running around areas of Afghanistan that they may or may not have cell reception, probably mm -hmm. do not have access to a computer. We're talking in July and August. People aren't just sitting at their houses if they're trying to exit the country. They're on the move. And they may or may not be able to send an email as easily as you or I could um, or somebody else sitting here stateside. So if you could put 30 minutes of your time into organizing documents and looking up contacts and sending six emails to different people, that's more than some of these people, these interpreters may have been able to do in a matter of three or four days. So it goes a long way. Yeah. And we're processing bureaucratic paperwork. That's all in English. And while these interpreters might speak English, that's different than being literate, um, which they are literate. Cause again, I said we're texting, but again, these are immigration form, whatever, one, two, three. And it's confusing. Yeah. It is. Confu it's confusing to me and I'm an yeah. attorney. Um, so that, that was kind of, that was the plan there. And then just didn't happen. It didn't happen. Nothing happened. And, um, it was just talking essentially. And then you have the Taliban doing, which is a blitzkrieg that happened. And, um, you know, when, when they started taking over, they're, they're doing shakedowns in these villages. They burned my interpreter's house down. They beat his dad. Um, he's on a list. He's on a it, list. It turned into, yeah, like it was, let's hurry up and do this into a panic, mm -hmm. essentially. And that's, that's what days. took us into August, right? So first July was just more like, all right, I'm going to coordinate the, the annoyance of the U.S. government. I'm going to be pushy with my senators. I'm going to vouch for this guy. I'm going to fight for him to get on the plane because the planes are coming. But I was a fool and uh, to think that that would actually happen. And um, it snowballed into the, the blitzkrieg of the Taliban takeover and then um, moving them to safe houses. Where can they get to? Like I, I found it's so first he fled his village into Kabul to a sort of acquaintance's house. But to your point, when he's on the phone doing this stuff, even with me, people are watching that and Taliban check phones. They can't read, but they can under, they see English. They say English, you're guilty. And so they, these guys are all so I, you know, I would find um, I'd be on Twitter uh, and just kind of trying to follow the right people. Like, let's say the entities that I used heavily for my law review article. Well, I started following them on Twitter because they're they're sort of spearheading these ideas and they're putting out sit reps almost of what's going on. And um, like one uh, refugee rights, I think that was the one or humanrights.org. One of them has the Dari um, PDF of how to wipe your phone. And so like sending things like that out, like, hey, look, here's how to clear your digital history so that if you go through a checkpoint, they can look at your phone and it'll be fine. Also, don't put any music as your ringer. Change your background to some religious thing. Um, so let me, again, they're going to beat you. Just to, to bring that into context for anybody that's listening. Think about taking your phone and wiping it right now. But you have to have that phone to be able to contact people that you haven't spoken with in years to get out of the country. Yeah. You can't have any of their emails saved. You can't have any of their phone numbers saved because a U.S. area code is going to be U.S. country exactly. code 
is going to be, to Sayer's point, uh, enough at some times to view you as spy, traitor, um, whatever it might be. So wipe your phone clean, and then the next minute you need it to save your life. There's like three numbers I can remember, and none of them are in the U.S. government. And his wife has to memorize my number in case he dies, because I still want to get his wife and daughter out. And I mean, that's just been the cycle of this. And I can't even initiate. Now it's a little different, but especially back in August, there were, I, I a lot of times just waited for him to initiate contact because I don't want to send him a text message at the wrong time. Um, and we're eight and a half hour difference. Um, but anyway, one of those entities, I was able to tap into a, uh, I found pretty uh, a lead person on the, who's been on this issue for years. I, have her, I got her email through a contact of a contact essentially. Um, Cause I was cold emailing journalists, just Twitter's, I didn't understand Twitter before. I actually kind of get it now. And it is a way to kind of reach people and, and, and get a hold of people. You wouldn't think you'd be, you would be able to. And uh, anyway, so a person put me in contact with another and I was able to find a secured zone in Kabul. Let's call it the green zone and uh, got him there for a bit. So at least he didn't have the neighbor snooping uh, looking at his text or listening to him on the phone, speaking English. You just don't know. And the Taliban are taking over and there's going to be rats in that environment that are going to um, try to get street cred or win favor with the Taliban. It's just it, it's a fact. And so that was always a threat, as well as the Taliban going through the homes and doing the shakedowns. Um, that was definitely happening. So the tempo is a little different right now in September. But in August, they were going through houses and kidnapping people there. I'm sure there are interpreters right now in um, prisons, Taliban prisons, and uh, some have already been executed. We already know that. And um, so then it snowballed into, okay, where are the flights? Where are the flights? And that didn't happen for a while. So still no flights. By the way, we said, we thought it was last week of July. We're into August. And then the flights start happening. And it's still back to that initial problem that I talked about. How do I get my guy in a manifest? And what it resulted in was the way you get someone on a manifest, you got to know people on the ground. Because I'll tell you what, our government back in D.C. Ha didn't have a freaking clue about anything that was going on on the ground from my take on it. I mean, there was such little coordination that. I don't even know who got through the gates, to be honest. There was 89,000 people in the SIV program, families. I think it was probably like 16,000 interpreters and then their wives and kids. So 90,000 people. Only 7,000 on that list actually made it out on this extraction. This air quote, largest air evac to get our allies and friends or whatever. Got less than 10% of the list. So now think we about well, think about that for the, the logistics on the ground. And it makes sense why you would say you have to know somebody there. So imagine that you're the, the, the guard there holding this, this list of 90,000 names. It's, it's three feet tall or whatever, probably on a computer. Um, or I, I don't know the process they used it. But anyways. He didn't have a list. So imagine 90,000 people all check the box. All they have to do is check this box. There's 90,000 people potentially that meet that criteria. When you have hordes at the airport, like we saw in Kabul, if you're like, it doesn't matter if you're the 90,000th name or the first name. If you're in line, you're right here, your name's on the list, you got to go. So it's just, it's not like a take a number and right now we're serving number 17. It, it had to have just been madness. Well, well, here's what the State Department did to try to alleviate this. Because what also happened was just everybody showed up in Kabul. Everybody. Because no, a lot of people don't want to live under the Taliban rule. And so you've got a guy that was a truck driver for some private company that may have delivered something on a U.S. base. Well, they're trying to get out and they're calling themselves SIVs. Well, that's bullshit. That's not what the SIV is. Um, and I get that they don't want to leave there and be stranded in Afghanistan and that Taliban are going to beat women and all of that. That's all true. But that's different than the SIV promise. It's a lot different. And the same thing with then you got American citizens that we're trying to get out to. Um, but that was the issue was there was no list. 
There was no list. And then what the State Department did in their infinite wisdom, they would email somebody an SIV and say, hey, yours is, uh, here's your visa. And they didn't send it to everybody. They would send it to certain SIVs that were um, down the line, processed down the line, but it, it didn't even have a name on it. A visa so, without a name? Yeah. So what do you think people did with that? And then friends you got and, gate Friends cards, and family, yeah. And then you have gate cards that don't have a list, that don't have a list. Um, and then now all these people with visas, by the way, how do you get to the gate? You got to get through a Taliban cordon. Yeah, so right when this, there, from what I read, correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah, the Taliban were not planning on taking Kabul right away. But as the Afghan army and Afghan police kind of fell to the side, the Taliban you know, rushed in to fill the gaps of so-called security. So they found themselves in these checkpoints potentially sooner and with bigger crowds than anyone expected. I don't think, I don't think the planning for American withdrawal was that on August 30th, people would pass through Taliban checkpoints to get into the airport. No. And again, that evolved from the, the blitzkrieg. Yeah. Just the blitzkrieg of the takeover and where they, yes, they did the takeover, which was pretty much nonviolent, right? ANA threw their arms down. Um, Ghani, President Ghani fled. Um, so they walked right into the Capitol without firing a shot. And then, yeah, they, they started beating people, making, you know, just show a force kind of we're in charge now. Uh, kidnapping people, yes. Uh, and then it became, I don't know, right? We're, I don't know. We're, but my take on this situation was then all of a sudden it's like, oh, they wanted to be, they've always called themselves the Islam, Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. They've always recognized themselves as the government of Afghanistan. Let's not forget that. We say we toppled them in 01. They say that that's never happened. They, they're still the government. They think that it's, it's, it's that Islamic Emirate. It's always been defined. It's on their stationary, which has the country of Afghanistan as its border. Um, so, and- Sarah, you mentioned that to get somebody through because of these lists or lack of lists, you had to know somebody on the ground. Did you get to the point where you or people you were working with had that? I got to the point where a helicopter pilot had my people's name and grid. And I had um, 18 people all linked up. These are like five different interpreter families, four or five, from various people that I know from high school, from college, uh, most people from Ohio that I grew up with in some form or fashion. And um, I mean, yeah, we, we, we got everything but the airspace cleared. One of the points we, we had them, we had, uh, we had contact with the gate guards many times with a specific gate where we had the near and far side passwords to these gates. And Wait, so um, you, you were passing you would have a password from the gate guard that you would share with an interpreter so they would be able, they'd be let through. Is that what you're saying? That was coordinated. That was yeah. like confirmed with the 82nd of the Marines. Like, hey, if you get to the okay. gate, yeah. I don't even know, right? This is like, it's just people that you know that you know. And they start making it happen. Um, and, but we just ran into challenges where we would have that information, but maybe by the time it came to us, it was like an hour stale. And it, maybe it was the Marines that we had contact with, but now 82nd was pulling guard and we didn't have it with them. Or, or we did have it and we had the window, but the, the freaking Taliban dickheads, they were the biggest dickheads about this. I mean, they were just checking freaking, all they would let through pretty much were blue um, passport holders, the, the American, American citizens. Yeah. Yep. They recognize that they're illiterate. They they let the 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 cheap visas come through initially. I think that's probably the bulk of the hundred and some thousand was at that beginning that got into the airport before the the Taliban cordon was able to really seal off the airport. And then so you got a lot of people that made it in first as just a refugee, let's say, not an SIV. And then those subsequent two or three days, a couple of days after, 
Taliban let in all these visa holders thinking they are visa holders too, but that, so that plan worked and then it didn't work. We didn't get in on that. Okay. So we never, we didn't get anybody in on that, but um, we did get a, a guy, his wife and, and son, this guy, he was out there. It's August in Afghanistan. It's hot as hell right now. And you've got a hundred thousand people out there. You've got water issues. Where do you go to the bathroom? What do you eat? Um, Taliban are beating the shit out of you. And um, we got him in two hours before the S-Fest went off. And a part of that was he got to the gate. He had a visa from State Department, but we were able to coordinate. This is one where we coordinated with the Marine, uh, Marine contact who got us in contact with the ground, with a guy on the ground who got us in contact with the actual gate. And uh, we also had my interpreter or this interpreter called his guy, his army guy, who's my high school friend. And he called him on the phone and my guy on the phone was vouching for him in English, you know, saying, hey, hey, this is mine. He's an interpreter. I was a former captain in the army. You got to let him through. You got to let him through. And, and, the, and they did. They did. They're coming. They'll be in the United States this week. They made it. Two hours later, the S-Fest went off and that gate and they sealed the gates for about 48 hours. They, they really didn't let anybody through unless you were you were really high up, um, like an American citizen. Or if you were an Afghan special forces sort of commando that had some high high reaching uh, people in the, in the military to help you out, not a ragtag group of veterans. This doesn't feel real. Like I know it is. I'm just saying it's like the idea that somebody on the ground is getting a phone call from a random American to vouch for a random Afghan on a three like. And that's the, that's the ticket, right? Like it's chance. It comes down to chance and luck. Like the guys that you were helping may have been more or less deserving than other people. We have no idea. They had your contact information. That was the differentiator. And well, what happened was they became, you know, my guy, they were all my guy. And which means I'm going to, I'm going to push people. I'm going to pick, pick my people up and I'm going to throw them over the wall. I'll push people out of the way. I don't give a shit. My people are getting on a fucking plane. And that was the mentality. And um, we, we all had that. And we didn't know what was going on. You've just got to deal because we're not there on the ground. And so we're dealing with intel from uh, our interpreters feeding us the, the situation because we're always the threat, the danger threat, the threat assessment. You just constantly having to go through that. And a lot of us, it's like turning it back on. Um, with the way we delegated, like, let's, let's think about who I was dealing with. My like Ohio team was a high school friend who did ROTC at a different school, who was an army officer. You know, I never worked with him in the army operationally wise. I have no relate, you know, you and I have an operational relationship. Um, that's unique and special, but like a high school friend, I don't, even though he was in the army, another guy went to ROTC with me a year younger than me, who was in the national guard. So again, yeah. And I wasn't, it's not like we were real close friends in college either. Uh, he just saw a Facebook post of mine when I mentioned I'm in the Ohio Senator's office. Um, if you have any interpreters, Ohio veterans, let me know and I'll get them on the list because we'll fucking punch people to get them on the plane. <laughs> Let's go. And um, it just, we essentially all um, made a lone little talk in our houses to feed information to our interpreters. Um, uh, Through this, I got a contact into a chat group of like 700 people that start, like mine, I said, was an Ohio group of us Chillicothe, you know, Southern Ohio guys, pretty much. This was a West Point group of West Point alums that were like, hey, same exact situation. How do we solve this problem? I don't know, but I know this guy. Okay, I know this guy. Okay, let's bring him in. That's how it started. And that's how they're started. And I was able to get into that. And uh, that had some really interesting, I mean, really like just a lot of information going on. I'm getting lots of intel from that because these people are on the ground. They have people on the ground and they're relaying information. But again, that's 700 people. You don't know all these people. People are not using their real name. That adds a complexity here. I was hoping you could talk to a little bit where something like this, you want 
to cast that net as wide as possible because you want to be able to talk to as many people on the ground, Afghans and Americans as possible. You want to have as many contacts in the United States because you never know, maybe Preston's uncle is the guy that holds the key. So you just want to open that net as wide as possible. But like you said, people weren't using their real names for I'm sure plenty of good reasons. And there's a chance that bad guys, Taliban, can find their way into groups like that. Yeah. Um, and they were. There were disruption operations. They were breaking. They got into the Discord chat. They got into the Signal chat. And, 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 and it would get blown. And we'd have to go to other channels and verify each other. And different vouching. I would vouch. I would do a video call in front of my wall of fame. Like, I don't it's a visual 214, I guess. I'm real. Um, so we had to do whatever was ever comfortable. And then, you know, I didn't want to, I'm a veteran. I don't have any clearance of anything. I'm not government related at all. Um, and so I'm flexible. I don't get a shit. But then I was respective of, you know, you're getting advice and then you can't be asking. It's like you want to verify the information and make sure it's trustworthy so that we can execute the plan. But at the same time, I can't be, I'm not comfortable asking exactly who you're with and what agency you're working for if you are working for an agency or something. Like, because there are also people that are maybe in the current guard. It's just, it's just an issue because they're, as we all know, you're, you are restricted in what you can and cannot do, especially with security clearances. And so I think that there are probably people going out of bounds with the rules and I was respective of that because I'm a rule breaker myself. And so I don't, I didn't want to compromise them either. So I'm trying to be sensitive to their sacrifice that they're making professional. I'm not making a professional sacrifice here. Um, I'm just sacrificing my time, my energies, my emotions, which it was, it was quite, it, it took a toll. It's a lot of work. Um, you know, in, in a way I, I just, I'm kind of, I'm kind of pissed off about it because I did 12 months of combat there. And, uh, now I feel like I had to do another two months. I got 14 months in Afghanistan in a sense. And um, I didn't fucking ask for that. None of us did. Um, but you just simply cannot allow the government to turn us into liars. This is the same government that um, massacred Indians and lied about it with treaties. And I just feel like we're still doing it today. And it's, it's a difficult time for me to process that information because you hear a lot the word gaslighting and gaslit, all that. I think it's overused and overplayed. Um, but I, I, over this summer and listening to how the government would um, totally just spin the news, spin the um, perspective of what was happening and the phrasing and say, no, no, that's not true. You know, this is the largest evac in history. This is like amazing. It's all great. It's all going according to plan. Um, when that was just not reality, it was not reality. And then just seeing this firsthand where they, the government can say that and people will forget. And so they can get away with anything that they want to. They, they really can, they can just say, nah, it's all good. In my fear, big picture is during the same time, we, uh, we passed an infrastructure bill. Great, great, trillions of dollars. New highways, new internet, uh, all this stuff, uh, new bridges. Let's build America back up from the inside. I 100% support that. But you know what? It's all words. And I just wonder 10 years from now, what's going to actually happen? What are the actions? What are the actions that are going to happen? Because the actions that I saw are much different than the words. The words were fucking lies. And it's real difficult for me to accept that. Let's look at some of the actions and we'll wrap up with this, the actions that you specifically took. So you've said it a couple of times, you're being humble. You were one part of a huge picture of people involved with trying to get Afghans out. So I know you're just one, you had your snapshot. Um, that's more than 99.9% .9 of Americans did. Um, mm. And anyways, what, can you throw some kind of, success and failure numbers out there how many that you were interacting with and working with got out are still in the process or are still there number one success nobody's dead right taliban are in control 
We haven't lost anybody. No one's been captured. No one's been kidnapped. We have 100% accountability and comms. That's successful. Of the, I'm going to say 10 families of direct control, even though we, you know, we get these emails and I'm just trying to feed people good advice. Mm -hmm. I might not be able to take you under my wing where I'm going to fucking punch and get fight for you. That was like 10 families, about 25 people. Um, Triple that family wise of other people just for advice. But um, of those 10, two made it out. One from the call I mentioned, the other one had friends in high places, got scooped up. Um, the, uh, I have two of the other families, uh, and this is open source now. There's, uh, we've got them in sort of in safe haven. Taliban know where they are. You We're can just, leave it pretty high level, yeah. Um, and the Taliban know where they are. And, and it's basically a paperwork issue. We've got essentially, we've got the funding for charter flights. We got destination locations, which um, I'm not even exactly sure where. I don't ask that question because it's higher up than I need to know. I just need to know I'm going to get my guy out and it's funded and he's got a name. He's got he's on the list. Uh, so two of these families, it's eight people are they're already in this location, which is not Kabul. Um, they take a long bus ride in the middle of the night to get this area, and we've just been in a holding pattern for a week, and it's an administrative holding pattern. The Taliban just announced their government yesterday. Um, they're crossing T's and dotting I's with passports and manifests, but they're not objecting to people leaving right now. And so that's good news. It is. And, uh, but then the State Department, they're being dickheads. So, and this is all civilian veterans. This isn't even a military thing. And the State Department are, uh, they are uh, blocking a lot of this, as are the Taliban. So, but it's all each day it moves a little bit. It's just not as fast as we want it to be. So, but I am optimistic. There's three in that category. Two families of eight eight people total in that category. Mm-hmm. So that leaves six. And is that six families that lost contact with? Well, actually, it's ten. There's another ten. So um, there's actually well, in reality, there's there's seventeen people account that we account for in Kabul that aren't on a list for anything. Well, they're on a waiting list for round three of what I'm talking about, which we haven't even done round one yet of the flight out. Um, and it's all imaginary, but that's really, that's kind of where we are operationally wise, where this phase that we're in, phase one as I viewed it was the US flying out of Kabul. And that ended not the 31st of August, but the 29th or 30th, something like that, when that last flight went out. That transitioned to phase two. No American presence and the Taliban 100% in control of the country. Um, so phase two is going to start with this um, evac of the two families on charter flights. And then phase three is or just second half of phase two is going to be processing these other 17 people that are in Kabul. And how do we do that? And that is situation changing all the time because again, the, the American government said, we're not giving up. We're still going to process it, but I call bullshit at this point. I'd be a fool to think that they're going to take care of these people. They're not, they are not. And so we're raising money to try to, one of the ways I'm hoping for, the Taliban want the, they do want to have an airport, an international airport in Kabul, and they want the Qataris to fly in and out, and they want the Turkey to fly in and out. And both of those countries have been amenable to the Afghan refugee, SIV or otherwise. We have another interpreter that's been there for a year already um, before the collapse. And he's just, he got out of the country while his paperwork is processing. And so um, that tends to, I think if, if, that transition does in fact occur where the Taliban will allow, or the, what I've read is they want Turkey and Qatar to sort of run the airport for them. And um, I'm, embassies are starting to open. And so just trying to think and get creative, because again, we, we just have nowhere to go. The, the government's not helping us. We're just relying on NGOs and other good ideas. And I, I'm thinking, that's yeah I, we should call it phase three is just going to be 
do we buy visas to a different country? And then how do we get them there and facilitate sort of that process in conjunction with, of course, finalizing the SIV paperwork, which ultimately is that golden ticket to America. So we may be able to get them out of Afghanistan um, to Turkey. But that doesn't mean that they, they have the right paperwork coming to the United States, though. So it's just one little step. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a long game, but there's a lot of people that are in it to the finish. And I'll tell you, the best part is that these people, when they make it to America, are going to raise their kids here. And uh, that's another part of it, besides the fact that I personally know some of these people, or just I want to honor the promise that we as a country make. That's important just as an American. And what's also important as an American is filling our people, our nation, with humble, hardworking, respectful, honorable people and who know where they come from. And this is a group that is exactly that. And I want those people in this freaking country. We need more of them, in fact. And so, yeah, I'm going to do everything I can. That's how you think. That's how I think you make America better. Well, I think this probably deserves a follow up just because it's still it's weird. I talked about this with some some buddies and I mean, right about the time the Taliban took Kabul and thought, that's it, you know new chapter, let's talk about it. And then we had the evacuation flights and it's like, oh boy, let's talk about that. And it, it's still ongoing. So I think it's worth, uh, let's see how some of this plays out and uh, maybe get back and talk about it. But Sarah, thanks. Thanks for the insight here and talking about what you've been doing. And I can tell you're, you're fired up about this. And there's a lot of people that are fortunate that you are fired up about it. Um, two out of 10 or 17 families doesn't sound like a lot, but that's, that's, changing a lot of lives with just those couple that made it out. So thank you for what you're doing. Yeah. Well, like I said, a lot of us, <laughs> we don't want to be doing it, but there's no option. And so we just got to go forward and um, yeah, it's been a long month. So it is hard for me to articulate it because it's, it was so crazy um, with, I still haven't fully decompressed, right. To be able to do, you know, we're kind of doing a debrief right now. And it's still kind of hard for me to articulate what the hell went on. <laughs> it was a wild shit show. Well, let's, give it a, let's give it a few more weeks and we might try again. There you but, go. Uh, Hopefully thanks. we'll have better updates, more right. progress. Thanks for doing this, Sarah. We'll uh, yep. talk soon, man. See you. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.